Good morning. Good to see everybody. My, one of my kids leaned over uh, before I came up here and said, it's a packed house, Dad, no pressure. <laughs> well, thanks. You're grounded. How's that for pressure? My name's Chad Myers. I'm our Adult Discipleship Director. It's good to be with you here in this room, and welcome to those of you joining us online. Glad you're here. We've had a great morning already. We've learned a new song. We've laughed. We've cried. Thanks, Stal. We appreciate you for your service. And uh, I wanna do one more thing before we dive in. Summer's coming to a close for many going to school and whatnot. So I want you to think of a summer highlight that you had this summer, summarize it in one word, and turn to your neighbor, whoever you're around, and tell them your summer highlight in one word. All right, you can do it, I promise. Ready, go. All the external processors are like, one word, no way. <laughs> Introverts are like, I've, you know what, I'm not saying, I'm saying anything. I told my journal earlier, I don't have to tell you. One guy in the first service, he said yard. I've been mowing all summer, I'm tired of it. <laughs> Mine would have to be Michigan, we vacationed there in the 70 degree weather and the uh, beaches there and we love it as a family. So we went just a few weeks ago and that was refreshing. And uh, this morning, I hope you've enjoyed kind of where we went with our summer with Wesley. And before we transition into our fall series, uh, we're going to have a couple of weeks standalone. This morning, I'd like to talk to us about our purpose, our purpose. Who or what are we living for? Is it unshakable? Is it unsinkable? What is our purpose? Several years ago, newspapers in the UK featured a story about a famous ex-professional soccer player. We say soccer, they say football. Paul Gascoigne, who is commonly known as Gaza. He was one of the most famous sportsmen in his generation in the 90s. However, since he retired, as all too often goes, since the end of his career, he'd struggled to find his purpose. He'd been in and out of rehab He was arrested for assault. In one recent headline, he was found staggering through the lobby of a hotel asking strangers to buy him a drink. One of his ex-teammates named Gary Lineker, who had become a successful broadcaster, he said this, hopefully he can find some sort of goal. He needs a reason to want to get better. He said that after he had retired from soccer, he, he couldn't find a purpose. He couldn't find anything to live for. Hopefully, he can find a new goal. He needs a reason to want to get better. And in reality, though that may not be our exact story, we all need a reason to go forward, a reason to keep changing, a reason to keep striving, a goal, something to live for, something to look forward to, something to invite us to transformation. We need a purpose. We need meaning to our life. We need something that will call us outside of ourselves. And there's all sorts of different things that we can shoot for and say, well, if I pursue this, that'll give me meaning. If I pursue that, that'll give me meaning or validation or whatever it is we're shooting for. And often we don't quite know those. They're not quite on a conscious level, but we're pursuing it unconsciously and it needs to be brought to the surface. And so one of my questions to kind of raise that into awareness is, is the purpose that we have 
Is it big enough that it can't be taken away from us? Can the thing that we are living for, can that be taken away from us? And if the answer is yes, then I would have to say, then we need a bigger purpose. We need a greater purpose. We need something that is unsinkable or unshakable. I'm going to kick us off with the book of Ecclesiastes. The message is going to kind of book in with Ecclesiastes. If Song of Solomon wrote this, uh, it is in the wisdom literature, and uh, he was known as one of the wisest people that ever lived, and he talks about the things he tried to pursue as an ultimate purpose. And I want you to listen carefully as I read this passage, and then I'll, I'll show you kind of what he's saying. Listen in Ecclesiastes 2, what he went to pursue. He says, I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness, and what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet, 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 when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, Everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. He goes on to say in verse 20, even so I gave my heart up to despair because of this. Did you hear the purposes that the writer pursued to try to find ultimate meaning? He pursued hedonism. I will just live for pleasure. I'll live for the next hit, the next high, the next event, the next party, the next thing on the calendar that kind of helps me escape my struggles and my problems. I will just live, I will deny my heart nothing that it desires. And he, he went through all of that. He pursued materialism. I built great houses. I built great projects. I planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks, reservoirs. I had choirs. They sang anthems in the halls. He pursued workaholism. I labored. I toiled. I invested. I gave my all. I thought that it was going to give me meaning. I thought that it could answer the deepest needs of my heart. I thought it, it could provide me validation and actualization. So I gave myself over to it. And then, I think this is relevant for today, he gave himself over to despairism. As the song says, there's a, you can be addicted to a certain kind of sadness. And just, uh, you know what? There's nothing. There's no meaning. It's pointless. It's everything. It's all random chaos. It just doesn't make any sense. There's an existential sense of despair that weighs upon people today. And he says, all of these I pursued. And as an ultimate purpose, it left me completely empty. 
And I said, meaningless, meaningless. All that stuff's meaningless. Now, here's the reality. There's some truth in all of those things. And some of those things that he was pursuing weren't bad in and of themselves, but they could never have sustained him as an ultimate purpose, as the thing that he was giving his life over to. Can your purpose, can my purpose, can it be taken away? A little over 400 years ago, a group of 350 Puritan preachers gathered together in London at Westminster, and they called it the Westminster Assembly, and they gathered together to write a theological document, and they wrote 107 questions and answers, known as a catechism, and they used it to train new disciples, to train new converts, to train families, to train children. It was written in a simple question and answer form so people could memorize this good doctrine, and the Scottish church immediately picked up on it, and the Scottish church was Presbyterian, so when Presbyterianism came over into the States, they kind of carried along this catechism, but it's used in broad, in general Christianity throughout the history of Christianity. And one of the first questions that the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks is this, what is the chief end of humanity? What's our goal? What's our telos? What's our purpose? Why are we here? And the answer is this, humanity's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. And they collected on the wisdom of the scriptures and put it together knowing that if we live for that purpose, it's unsinkable, it's unshakable. That can never actually be taken from us. We all exist for the glory of God. Everything that you see on this earth exists for the glory of God. Everything unseen, angels in the spiritual realm, exists for the glory of God. Pizza, watermelon especially, barbecues, summertime, Education, I'm sorry students, I, I know, it does. It exists for the glory of God. Arts, marriage, singleness, kids, grandkids, it all exists to reflect the goodness and the glory and the greatness and the wisdom and the depths of a creator God. Paul put it like this in 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God that there's such a way that you can study for an exam and be at class that gives God glory, that there's such a way that you can prepare for your work week and lead your business and conduct business with others in the, in the area and lead your employees in such a way that gives God glory, that there's such a way that you can serve those in your core relationships and lift them up and encourage them, that you can do it in such a way that gives God glory, that you can sweep the house, wash the dishes, make dinner, Go to practice. You can do everything in such a way that reflects the goodness and the wisdom of God. This transcends materialism. It appeals to pleasure but puts a constraint on it. It invites the death of ego. It's bigger than ourselves. And yet, if you're anything like me, it's challenging. Easy to understand. Very difficult to Get it in our hearts, get it in our minds, put it into practice. 
I think there's four mindsets that we have to overcome if we want to live more fully for the glory of God, more fully for the goodness of God. And the first mindset is this. The first mindset that gets in the way is, I don't want to glorify God. I just don't want to. Do you hear kind of the echo of maybe a toddler? Like, I don't want to. And you got to do this. I don't want to. I don't want to do it. Now, now we know the right answers in church, right? So because we know the right answers, we often get in trouble because we say the right answers, even though we know the real answer in our heart. So this one, we have to be really honest about, that there's a part of us that the mindset is set on self. And this is the predominant theme and thread in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve said, uh, no, thank you. All, all wise and benevolent creator and good and humble king. No, thank you. We don't want to submit to your ways. I would prefer to live autonomously and independently. And I'm going to be the captain of my own ship and the master of my own fate. And I'm going to live for me and I'm going to do it my way. Thank you very much. This is a glory hoarding mindset. It's the, the child who hasn't grown into maturity that bosses everyone around them because we're all pawns in the child's kingdom, right? Like, here, here, get another drink for me. And they snap their fingers. I can't snap with that hand. So, you know, you get it though. They snap their fingers like, you exist for me. Bring me food and drink. Run my bath water. Clean my room. Unfortunately, some of us don't go out of that mindset as we get older and bigger. This is the mindset fixed on the self, and sometimes it's fixed on what we think are the pleasures of sin, what we believe and experience as a result of sin, that sin gives us pleasure and maybe power, and it fills that void really quick. Listen to Hebrews 11. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. It is a gift of grace, friends. It is a gift of grace to experience the emptiness of sin. It is a gift of grace to experience the futility of sin. It is a gift of grace to experience the discouragement of sin because it means that we're experiencing the fleeting pleasures of sin. And it means that we might just be waking up to, I don't think that's good for me anymore. That actually causes me harm, causes the people I love harm. It doesn't reflect the goodness of God. I, I'd rather stop. Can we, can we do something about that? Not everybody experiences the fleeting pleasures of sin. They stay stuck in that cycle. So it's a gift of grace. When I was late high school, early college, I started to consume a lot of literature by a pastor named John Piper uh, out of Minneapolis. And um, he has kind of one dominant theme that kind of run th runs through all of his books. And it's basically this, God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him. God's most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him. And he took this Westminster Catechism, this one question, and he took it and he actually just changed one word. And he said this, we exist to glorify God, not and enjoy him forever, but by enjoying him forever. Our chief end is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. That means that when we pursue our joy and we pursue our pleasure and we pursue our life force in who God is, we actually then start to 
enjoy him and bring him glory. So we might say, well, am I living for God's glory? And the follow-up question could be, I don't know, how much am I enjoying God? How much am I enjoying being in his presence, resting in his love, being confident in his goodness, lifting him up? The second mindset that we might have to overcome, and, and friends, these mindsets, we might have all of them. We might have one of them. It might be a season of one over the other. Um, so see, mindset number two is this. I can't glorify God because I don't have what it takes. It's not I don't want to glorify God. It's, it's I can't glorify God because I don't have what it takes. This is a mindset that focuses on inadequacy and struggles with inadequacy. I just can't do that. Now, there's a healthy sense of inadequacy. Like right before I preach when I'm over here in uh, the, the backside here, and I'm like, hey, um, yeah, I've, I've worked hard. I've done my research. I've prayed. I've asked God to guide me and anoint me this week, and I've tried to craft it together in an effective manner, and yet I can't cause spiritual growth. So I got nothing. It's you that has to do the work. I'll play my part, I'll be responsible, but it's really you. That's a healthy sense of inadequacy, but there's an unhealthy sense of inadequacy, and it's something like this. You know, I, I, uh, I see everybody else. I see what they got. I see their family. Well, look at their relationship. We start to get into this comparison thing. I, I'm not really a shiny, flashy person. I don't have the gifts. I, mean, I, I don't have any musical abilities to offer. I'm not very eloquent with words. I'm not really smart. I don't know my own business. And I'm not very good at this stuff. And we start to start to put all of this inadequacy on ourselves. I can't be used by God because look at me. I, I don't really have anything good to offer. In 1611, there was a, a boy named Nicholas Herman born to peasant parents in Lorraine, France. As a young man, his poverty forced him to join the army and then he was guaranteed meals and a small stipend. During this time in the army, he had an experience with God that caused him to become a Christian and want to pursue God more. He was injured later and he had to exit, so he joined a monastery so that he could kind of ensure that he would have a roof over his head and a bed and some meals. But he wasn't qualified enough to be a full-on monk, so you know where they placed him in the kitchen. So he had to take orders from everyone else, clean this, cook this, do this. And there he stayed for the rest of his days. And we learn a great deal from him. We don't have a lot of writings from him, but what we do teaches us about the deep spiritual life. In one of his writings, he said this, Men invent means and methods of coming at God's love. They learn rules and set up devices to remind them of that love. And it seems like a world of trouble to bring oneself into the consciousness of God's presence. Yet it might be so simple. Is it not quicker and easier just to do our common business wholly for the love of him? Is it not quicker and easier just to do our common business wholly for the love of him? We know him as Brother Lawrence. He wrote a short book called The Practice of the Presence of God. And he said, if we clean that dish for the love of God, we're in the presence of God giving him glory. If we mop that floor, if we cook this meal, if we serve these people and we do it out of love of God, we can live for the glory of God no matter what we're doing. We can be ordinary people doing ordinary things in an extraordinary way. 
That's really what we are. We're ordinary people doing ordinary things in an extraordinary way. One of the greatest challenges that we have is we resist to accept our own story, who we are, how God has wired us, our own limitations, and to keep in step and rhythm with our own calling. Instead, we try to live everyone else's story, and we end up so discouraged and frustrated because look at them. I'm not like them. There's a professor of writing at Syracuse, and every year they gather thousands of applications from writers who want to go to the next level. And what they do is they take about a few hundred applicants. And in this course, they don't teach the rudiments of writing. There's no basics of writing. This is, you've all learned the basics. You know how to write. And he says what his goal is to do for these young writers is to help them get in their iconic space. And what he means by that is to find their own unique way of writing that no one else has written like before and that no one else will write like in the future and that no one else is writing right now. And it's your own unique voice. Brene Brown, shame researcher, author, speaker, leader, says it like this. You either walk inside your story and own it or you stand outside your story and hustle for your worthiness. You either walk inside your story and own it, or you stand outside your story and hustle for your worthiness. Sometimes we're so spiritually exhausted because we've been hustling for that approval. We've been hustling for that validation. We've been hustling so that you might see me and recognize me and give me some admiration and we're exhausted because it's not our story. And when we accept our story, and the reality is it may not get a lot of likes, that's okay because we'll be more fully who we were made to be and we'll be living a story that brings God glory. Third mindset that we have to overcome, it's another I can't. I can't glorify God because I'm too broken. I'm too broken. Do you know me? I'm too broken. This is a mindset of shame. This is the mindset of maybe overwhelming, nagging guilt. Do you know what I've done? Do you know what I've said? If you only knew my thoughts, if you only knew the motives of my heart, if you only knew the sin that I struggle with, then you would know I'm too messed up. I'm too broken for God to use. I can't give him glory. I feel like all the time I'm just disappointing him. There's a parable of a water bearer in India that had two large water pots one hung on each end of a pole, which he carried across his neck, and he would go down to the stream and fill it up and bring the water back to his master's table. Well, one of the pots had a crack in it while the other was perfect and whole and always delivered a full portion of water, while the cracked pot only delivered half a portion. For a full two years, this went on daily, well, the water bearer delivering only one and a half pots full of water to the master's house. Of course, the perfect pot was proud of its accomplishments, perfect for the end which it was made, but the poor cracked pot was ashamed of its own imperfection and weakness and miserable that it was able to only accomplish half of what it had been made to do. After two years of what it perceived was a bitter failure, it spoke to the water bearer one day by the stream and said, I'm ashamed of myself and I would like to apologize to you. The water bearer said, well, why? What are you ashamed of? 
And the pot replied, for these past two years, I'm able to deliver only half of my load because of this crack in my side. It causes water to leak out all the way back to your master's house. And because of my flaws, you don't get full value for your efforts. The water bearer felt sorry for the old cracked pot. And in his compassion, he said, well, as we return to the master's house, I at least want you to notice the beautiful flowers along the path. As they went up the hill, the old crackpot took notice of the sun warming the beautiful wildflowers on his side of the path. And this cheered it somewhat, but at the end of the trail, it still felt bad because it had leaked out half of its water. So again, it apologized to the water bearer for its failure. The bear said to the pot, did you notice that there were flowers only on your side of the path, but not on the other pot's side? That's because I've always known about your flaw and I have used it. I planted flower seeds on your side of the path, and every day while we walk back from the stream, you've watered them. For two full years, I've been able to pick these beautiful flowers to decorate my master's table. Without you being and having this flaw, he would not have this beauty to grace his house. And yet, it's so counterintuitive to the human condition that we fight tooth and nail, myself included, to cover up our flaws, to cover up our weaknesses, to make us pretend that we're stronger than we are, that we have it together more than we really do, to present a false self to other people so that they admire us, but no one will really know us and we wonder why we feel lonely. We work really, really hard to say, oh, that thing, that thing that's gotta be covered up, we can't let people into that place and God, if you would just fix that, then, then I could live for your glory. Paul, in his wisdom, says it like this in 1 Corinthians 12. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. If you don't have a memory verse, if you're looking for something, that's a good one. It'll ground you. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. It sounds insane because it's so counter to what we want to do. And yet, it's so wise. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is stifled by your weakness. Stunted by your weakness? Stopped by your weakness? No. My power is made perfect in your weakness. It's through the cracks in our armor that the light of Christ shines through. So we find people in our life who are safe and we can trust and we invite them into these places and we share the burden and we share the brokenness so that our story might begin to get healed and find some redemption and so that others might begin to see, get healing as well. The very thing that you and I think disqualifies us for being used by God is the very thing God is inviting us to be used in. God, I hope that encourages some of us this morning. And the last mindset we have to overcome is, trust me, I already glorify God. Now the tone is important in this one. 
You have to say it right. It's not, it's not, trust me, I already glorify God. It's, trust me, I already glorify God. You see, that's important. That's how you have to say it, because that's the meaning. This is the mindset of spiritual pride. This is the mindset of, yeah, I got it together. I think I'm pretty good. I got a lot of gifts that I could offer God's team. He might even be proud to have me on it. This is just pure ego. It's the mindset of the Pharisee, actually. Praying loud prayers with really big Christian words that nobody else understood. They had to go home and look it up. They didn't have Google, imagine that. They had these things called phylacteries they'd wear on their forehead full of scriptures that they'd memorized. And the idea was, you know, the larger the box on the front of your head, maybe the more spiritual you were because you had more scripture memorized. It's the mindset that says, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna read and pray and then I'm gonna tell everybody about it because I want them to see how spiritual I am. It's the mindset of Paul. Paul was certain that he was right. In Philippians 3, a Pharisee of Pharisee, a Hebrew of Hebrews, persecuting the church. He was certain that he knew who God was. He was certain that he knew who he was. He was absolutely certain that he knew who the enemy was. And it was less braggadocio and more overconfident in his perspective. That's why Jesus had to come to him rather abruptly, and I talked about it a few weeks ago, blind him so that he couldn't see, so that he could then actually see and humble him so that he could really start to understand who God was and who self was. And he was certain he was living for the glory of God and he was doing anything but. This is a mindset that has to be humbled and broken. Pride is like a wall. It's not like a bruised reed. It's not like a faintly burning wick. It's not, oh, let's be real gentle. It's like a boastful, proud wall that often only the only thing that can get through is a wrecking ball. And then the mindset is able to say, I was wrong. I got work to do. At the end of Ecclesiastes, after the author has pursued these subultimate and penultimate purposes that have really left him empty, he gives, comes back around and says, I've figured out the ultimate purpose. Ecclesiastes 12, 13 says this, now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the duty of mankind. And I think it's safe to say that in our context, it would still be faithful to say this. Here's the end of the matter and here's the conclusion. Enjoy God and keep his commandments. Delight yourself in God. Pursue your life in God. Pursue your joy in God. Pursue your, your pleasure in God. Pursue your purpose in God. And if that is your ultimate purpose, there's gonna be other goals and there's gonna be other purposes and that's, that's normal. But if that is our ultimate purpose, that we exist to reflect the goodness and the wisdom of a, a creator God, then no matter what happens to our other purposes, we won't be shaken. We won't be sunk. 
we won't be completely devastated and fall into despair because the very thing that we're doing now, we will actually be doing for all eternity. In just a few moments, the worship team's gonna come out and we're gonna sing, but before we do, I would love for us just to enter into a posture of reflection and prayer. So wherever you are, I just invite you to close your eyes. Let's just take a few moments for reflection. What has God said to you this morning? What has he spoken to you? Not necessarily for someone else, but for you. Is there a mindset to overcome? Maybe your prayer this morning is, God, help me know the emptiness of my sin. Don't let me be satisfied with it anymore. Maybe you're here and you feel hopeless because you've been trying to live someone else's story. Maybe someone else's expectations for your story. And maybe today you just surrender and accept who you are who God's made you to be and what he's called you to do. Maybe today we need a new understanding of what it is to be forgiven. Do you need to receive Christ's forgiveness for that thing that you thought disqualified you from service to Jesus? That past, that present, whatever it might be, Maybe we need to know that we've been forgiven much so that we can love much. Do you need to humble yourself? Do you need to say, God, I don't have everything figured out. I don't have all of my relationships in order. I need your help. I need your guidance. I need to cast myself on your mercy. Whatever it is, God knows you, God hears you, God loves you. Father, we thank you for your scriptures that really lay us all bare. None of us, none of us get to hide from the truth of your text, the truth of your gaze, but we know that it's not condemning. We know that it's not judgy. We know that you don't put us in our place. We know that you love us and you want the best for us. Often we get in our own way. We become our own worst enemy. So today I pray as your scripture says, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. I pray for a work of freedom. I pray for those who are so down and so burdened with the weight of life or their sin that you would lift us up, set our feet on a rock, put a new song in our mouth. Father, I pray for those who've just been scrambling and are so exhausted. They're just like, I've been trying to live for every other purpose and it's just not working anymore. It's not satisfying anymore and I feel so lost. I pray for wisdom. I pray for guidance. I pray for clarity. 
And Father, for the brick walls that often surround our heart, would you break those down? By the power of your spirit, for the sake of your goodness, for the sake of your glory, teach us what it means to delight ourselves in you for your sake and for our joy. And all God's people said, amen.